Welcome to Birthright. This is Kimberly Seals-Allers, and I'm so excited to be joined today by Anna Malika Tubbs. Anna is an educator and a scholar and is currently a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Anna recently added two new titles to her already impressive resume, author and mother. Today, we will talk about both. I'm Anna Malika Tubbs. I am the mother of a son who's 17 months old. His name is Michael Malachi Tubbs. We all call him Malachi. My son, my, my husband's also Michael, and I, I knew this was going to happen. It was my plan all along that we were going to call him Malachi. Um, and he's also named after me, my second name. We moved the I to the end. And I have another one on the way due in August this year, and I'm so excited. So I'm about 17 weeks pregnant as we speak. Wow, congratulations. And thank you for being a birthright first, where our birthing person is also expecting. What a joy. Anna, take us to finding out you were pregnant the first time. That magical moment when the test reads pregnant is so just amazing, such a blessing. I was in D.C. with my husband. We were there for an event, and it was pretty funny because it was this really busy week, and i just kind of thrown my bag together for the event. So we flew out to D.C. I only had one dress option, and it was this white cream-colored dress. And I remember thinking the entire time I'm at the event, oh, no, my period is coming soon. What if it starts here? <laughs> you know, I don't have what I need. I don't have tampons. I don't have pads. I'm just wearing this cream-colored dress. And so I kept excusing myself to use the restroom and, you know, checking and breathing a sigh of relief. Everything was fine. I'd come back. And so later on that night, Michael surprised me after the event because it was Valentine's Day and he took me out for some dessert and some wine. And, you know, we're sitting there just talking. And then I suddenly felt just sort of sick to my stomach. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I took a step back and then it sort of made me process the week. And I really messed up the count on my days because we'd been so busy. And I realized, wait a second, because we'd been trying (laughs) um, to conceive. And I thought in my head, oh my goodness, I'm not, maybe I'm not, you know, do, maybe I'm already late. Let me go check, you know, count my days on my phone. And so I said, Mike, and he looks at me because he was, you know, I was in my own little world and my own thoughts. And he says like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I said, I think I'm more than okay. Let's go to CVS. I, I want to get a pregnancy test. And so we went there. We're in our fancy clothes from this game. <laughs> and I pick up the test and take it later on that night. And on Valentine's Day, we found out that we were expecting. And it was so beautiful. I obviously cried immediately. It was very emotional. But within just a few seconds of that initial joy and <laughs> excitement, I also felt a lot of fear, a lot of worry. I couldn't kind of settle that part of my mind that thought immediately about loss and what might happen if I lost this child that I already felt so connected to and already felt so much love for. And so I think ever since that moment, it's been finding this balance between not shutting off that fear, but acknowledging that fear and thinking of ways to allow myself to not only cope with that, but find ways to think about everything much more positively and to embrace the love and the passion and the excitement of it all, while also realizing why some of those fears are very real and thinking about what I can do in my own life to keep those fears at bay. When we look at the statistics, honest fears are real. Sadly, we hear of Black mothers planning wills and other end-of-life documents before they give birth. This saddens and sickens me. 
But what's also real is what Anna is saying about being intentional, about focusing on the positivity, which could include daily affirmations, a meditation practice, yoga, reading scripture, and finding all the ways and all the things to keep those positive vibes flowing. My pregnancy was really, I mean, you know, every pregnancy is different, but from all the different stories that I've heard, apparently a very easy one. Um, but at the same time, of course, when you're going through it, it feels so different. I think especially your first time, because at the beginning, I kept saying that it felt like I was like my body was trying to treat the child as if it was like a parasite or something like something we were trying to remove. I felt so sick, so tired, just completely out of it in that first trimester. You know, I kept saying, I don't want to feel like this. This is so terrible. Is this going to be the whole pregnancy? This is so hard. And I was very, very emotional about it. And then as soon as the second trimester arrived. It felt like this dark cloud <laughs> had been lifted. I had all my energy back. I was so excited. But I still, each day in, day out, was very worried leading up to my delivery and to labor. And not only because, you know, I think all of us when we have children for the first time feel a little worried because you just don't know what to expect. But I also felt that I'd been told in so many different ways that it was a fearful experience, that there was, you know, you didn't know what was going to happen and you should be prepared for the absolute worst and all of this kind of in many ways, over-medicalized way of thinking about the experience scared me. And I was really well aware as somebody who studies black feminist theory and race and gender of the black maternal health crisis. I knew it was not only a fear that I had, but a very real danger going into it. So I knew early on I wanted to have either a midwife, a woman of color next to me, or doulas to work with. Unfortunately, in Stockton, where we lived before, and we've now relocated to Los Angeles, there weren't many midwives of color, if any. I couldn't find them. It was very difficult to find doulas to work with, even. So it was something that I realized a lot of our communities that are more marginalized, kind of forgotten, ignored don't have the resources that they need, especially for birthing parents. And so I was fortunate enough to find somebody in Oakland and to work with three doulas from Oakland, originally two, but my main doula couldn't make it the day of, so I ended up having three incredible ones to work with. My name is Mika Cade, and I live in Oakland, California, and I am a birth doula, and I'm the educational coordinator for the Oakland Better Birth Foundation. A doula is a person who provides physical, mental, and emotional support to people prenatally, during birth, and postpartum. And as soon as I met with them, they completely changed my perspective about my pregnancy, about my labor and delivery. I told them about my fears from the first meeting. And Samsara Morgan, who's been a doula for about like 30 some years, stopped me, you know, at the end of my thought and said, you know, I, I respect the sphere that you're saying you have. And, you know, you say you don't think you're going to have control over anything on the day of She's like, but I'm going to just tell you very gently that you're wrong about that. She's like, you are the one in control. The rest of us, including your husband, are here to help your vision of your birth and your delivery become a reality. And we want to hear you. We want to make your plan together. We want to think about how you're going to voice to us what you need in this moment where you're going to be extremely vulnerable. But you should know your body knows what to do. You're going to be ready for this. And we're going to be right by your side. And even that initial meeting, I felt so much pressure 
relieved and felt like I wasn't alone and also felt so empowered. I was a superstar. I was going to do this incredible thing. My body was ready already to do it. And I just needed to get my mindset right and make sure that I I believed in myself. I love this. And when we think about why doulas are critical in improving birth outcomes, this is what is at the core of it. Helping birthing people establish a knowledge base and regain a confidence that was taken from us all when birth was medicalized. And the data on their impact on the birth experience speaks for itself. So in 2017, there was a Cochrane review of over 39 trials and 15,000 people that showed that doulas decrease C-section rates, they increase vaginal birth, decrease the use of pain medication, shorter labors, and they really overall positively impact birth outcomes. Yes, they do. But there is one issue. Access to doulas of color is often a challenge. I did meet with some midwives in Tracy, a neighboring city to Stockton, but there weren't any of of color. They were white women, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but my experience of speaking with them and meeting with them in person, to be completely frank, it felt very judgmental. It didn't feel very supportive, and I can contrast that now to the experience I had when I did meet with Samsara, Mika, and Kathleen, and they were so just they were wrapping me in love from the very beginning. So it's also about finding doulas and midwives who have our experiences, even if we're very different from each other, but who are going to see me with respect and with dignity and not treat me in this kind of patronizing way or a way that I read as being very, yeah, just very judgmental and sort of, oh, you're this young girl and probably young black girl and maybe you shouldn't be having a child kind of thing and maybe I read a little too much into it because I'm so aware of the biases around this but it just didn't feel right to me as compared to when I met the three that I did. Well there's first of all there's just not enough of us. There also are not enough culturally competent doula training programs. Our modern doula profession was created by middle-class white women who were dissatisfied with their birth experience. So those trainings and the profession in many ways was designed initially to really cater to those women. But now, and really in recent years, and thanks to Black midwives, really, and some Black doulas um, who've been around for a really long time, we know that we have our legacy and tradition of Black birth work in the United States that we can look to. And it's all really, there's these revitalizing efforts happening right now as we speak. And so we need to get it out to more people. It was wonderful. And really, it kind of started almost two days before he was actually born, because the night before Thursday night, he was born on a Saturday morning. I started to get Braxton Hicks back to back. And I was thinking, you know, I don't want to get my husband too excited because weeks leading up, I would call him and about anything he would answer after the first ring, thought that I was, you know, in labor. And I realized, okay, I need need to make sure that he is ready. And I'll tell him when it's really happening. And so um, I didn't say anything that night before. But then the, the next morning, I woke up and I had some bloody show uh, when I used the restroom. And then I said, oh gosh, this is so exciting. I texted, you know, my doulas, we were always texting each other and said, this is what's happening. They said, okay, great. So they had this balance that whole day between, you know, it could be happening today, 
but it also could still be a couple of weeks. So we don't want you to get too excited. But they were like, that's definitely, you know, a sign that the baby is coming. I said, okay, great, cool. This is great. And then I said, can I, you know, go do the things that I still was going to do today? They said, yes, but we need you to take it easy. So I said, I was going to go do yoga. <laughs> we said, all right, Anna, go ahead and do yoga. But after that, we need you to rest. I said, okay. So I went to yoga that day and I do yoga, you know, at least three times a week. And I really knew when I was in yoga, okay, the baby like overnight has definitely pushed lower there were certain poses that I could always do that I couldn't do and I said to my instructor I think this is my last class before the baby arrives (laughs) and so she said oh that's you know that's so exciting and so I went then later to distract myself got my nails done that day but my cramps were starting to build so it definitely at first felt like you know period like cramps of course that I hadn't felt in several months and I texted the doulas again to tell them that and they said, okay, you know, we definitely think you need to go and take a nap, you know, because if this is going to happen, they'd always told me that the number of babies that are born, like in the middle of the night is kind of like, this is usually when you go into labor, I guess there's something about like the chemicals in your brain that say, this is when I'm most relaxed and most calm. And that's when your body starts to open up a little bit more. So they said a lot of children arrive or you go into like your full on labor experience through the night. So I want you to nap now. So I went home, I texted Michael, I took a nap for like an hour, and then I woke up to some pretty intense contractions. And they weren't quite patterned yet, but I said to Mike, okay, maybe just go get me something to eat. And he he went and got me some food, but he was gone for a while, I guess, kind of just reflecting on the fact that he was going to become a father, which really stressed me out. I suddenly started to feel very like, I need my protection. I need, like, I was starting to get really almost nested and like something's about to happen and I need my support right now. And so I called him crying and I was like, you need to get back right now. (laughs) I ate a little bit of pad thai and whatever, but then we started to realize when he got home because he could time it for me. You know, when you're in pain yourself, it's really difficult to see what the pattern is. But when he timed it for me, they were clearly patterned contractions. And so we kind of went into our whole plan that we'd set out with the doulas. He played my playlist that he surprised me with you know a lot of Beyonce (laughs) it was very sweet he ran a bath for me and a big part of working with my doulas was that they prepared him very well for the moment I supported Michael through education primarily at first so Michael came to every prenatal appointment with us we met about six to eight times prenatally And he was there for every session. He was asking questions. He was just part of that whole process. And when we learned coping measures and labor, I was teaching Michael because I know that Michael is Anna's beloved and you want your beloved to be the one touching you and caring for you in labor, right? So I taught him how to do many of these techniques so that he could be the primary person to be the one for her in labor. And then in labor, I, you know, would kind of make suggestions about like ways that he could help her or going into the bathroom together and spending that time so they could have some bonding. Um, And so really being that doula for him too. Michael was so excited and like ready to be that support person for Anna. It was so sweet to watch him really step up and step into that role with confidence. And yeah, it was beautiful. 
and that mattered a lot. I didn't want it to feel like it was just me who was going through this experience. They reminded us over and over again, this was a team effort, not only between my husband and I, but also between the baby, my husband and I, all of us were gonna be working in this moment together as a family, which was so beautiful and unifying. And so he reminded me of those themes. We did some thought exercises together. As I was taking my bath, I called my doulas again and they said, all right, we're on our way. You're, you're clearly in labor. And so we'd planned on me doing most of my labor from home. Well, so this was like what I thought, I thought I was much further along. So it was definitely like a first mother kind of experience. By the time they got there, I was laying on the floor, you know, in agony and I was in so much pain. And I was like, this baby is about to arrive because I cannot imagine this pain getting any worse. And, you know, they were massaging me and trying to calm me down. And I'm trying to like even lessen the pressure that I was holding in my face as I was tensing up. You know, they kept reminding me of these things they had different oils and scents for me to calm down and they were massaging my body <laughs> and God bless their hearts. Even though they knew I was nowhere close, they said, all right, you know, do you want to go to the hospital? Are you ready to go? I said, yes, like, cause this baby's coming right now. So we go to the hospital which was about five minutes away. And the nurse asks me on a scale of one to 10, of course, she's really trying to assess how dilated I probably was. She says, how, how bad is the pain? I said, a 10, a 10, absolutely. I, this is, we're done. And they checked my cervix. I was at a three. So, and I said, um, how, how much longer am I supposed to go? They said, as you know, you have to get to a 10. And so I looked at Michael, you know, and I had in my mind this vision of me having a labor without an epidural and unassisted labor in that sense. I didn't want an IV in my arm. I wanted to do this as, as on my own, quote unquote, as possible. And I looked at him and kind of thought, I'm only at a three. How am I going to do? But then I realized that I needed to kind of quit all the drama <laughs> and say, okay, Anna, if this is how you want to do this you need to kind of think about this a little bit differently. And I remember my doulas prepping me for this. There's a moment where you kind of shift your mindset from the fear and kind of the drama and this is so unknown to, I can do this, I need to center myself, I need to calm down. And I said, okay, I'm, I like kind of closed my eyes and started to really center myself. And then I remember looking at her and she was standing on the ground over the bed and she was mid-contraction and she was moaning, yes, yes. And she looked like the goddess that she is in all of her power, summoning the strength of her ancestors in that moment. And Kathleen and I looked at each other like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because it was so powerful and it was a spiritual experience, I think, for everyone in the room. I could feel her ancestors there in that moment. And took several showers, apparently. Some of this is sort of a blur. But I do remember Michael being right by me the entire time, breathing with me, my doulas massaging my pain, allowing me to move around the room as much as possible, really advocating for me with the nurses, who were also incredible, but they really wanted to obviously monitor 
my heart rate as well as the baby's heart rate. But sometimes the things that they put on you, you can't move quite as much as you want to. And so I really just couldn't sit still. So I was moving all around the room and they kept coming in saying, you need to sit so we can monitor the baby. And I would look at my doulas just sort of like, I, I will not sit. <laughs> so they would have the communication with the nurse saying, she's fine. She's healthy. Like, you know, this is her health record. She's going to be okay. Just allow her to move and do what she wants to do. And so everyone was just letting me move. I remember at one point throwing up the pad thai that I'd eaten a little bit earlier, not expecting that to happen. But my doulas kept telling me, you know, these are the markers. This is completely normal. You know, oh, you threw up? Great. Like, and things that I thought were kind of weird. You know, I, I thought I was going to use the restroom and my water broke. And I thought something had happened. <laughs> so I said, oh no, what's wrong? They said, no, your water's breaking. That's completely normal. We're moving along in the process. So anyways, we'd gotten to the hospital at about 11 p.m. at night. He was born nine in the morning and my contractions had really started like 15 hours before he was born. So there was like a 15 hour long labor experience. When we got to the pushing, uh, <laughs> I remember asking, cause I thought in my head, wow, I've gone through so much and we're almost there. I'm almost at 10. And then I realized, oh my goodness, when I get to 10, it's not done. I have to push. That's when the hard part really begins. <laughs> and I, again, got a little scared. But I asked my doulas, how long does it take the pushing part? And they said, we're going to be honest. For first-time moms, sometimes it's about two hours. And I said, oh, in my head, I said, no, absolutely not. It, I said, I will. Mm -mm. It's going to be a lot faster for me. I am done, and I'm tired, and I just don't want to, I can't do this anymore. I had a lot of moments, too, where I felt like I was sort of in a trance. Like, I felt like I was, like, speaking to my ancestors, like, if they could do this, you know, in some of the hardest conditions like I can do this and I was talking to myself you know my doulas said later it was clear that you were like somewhere else finding whatever strength and power that you needed and so when it came time to push I pushed for 15 minutes and I remember the nurses saying oh she's a great pusher this baby's coming really soon and I felt so proud of myself yeah exactly as like, I've been doing these planks I've been doing this core work and long story short now he was born at 9:03 on that Saturday morning and it was so beautiful so magical despite the pain that was still coming from you know delivering the placenta and the stitches which I, again, didn't really know was going to be so painful just to have somebody, you think you're dead. And then it's like the pain just keeps coming. And I actually like kicked the doctor when he was trying to <laughs> stitch me back up. But I said to Michael, I was like, they just need to stop hurting me because I've done what I need to do. <laughs> Baby is here and healthy. So everyone just leave us alone. So that's my, my birth story. <laughs> Wow, what a beautiful story. I love this idea of you tapping into this higher power and feeling all the ancestors being there with you because not only was this birth a pivotal experience for you entering motherhood, but this also became a turning point for you in terms of your scholarly work. In fact, you have written a new book about three Black mothers. I just wrote the book uh, called The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation, about Alberta King, Burtis Baldwin, and Louise Little, and telling their life stories and helping readers understand how much life they were giving us long before they became literal moms through their art, through their creativity, through their activism, their passions, and their talents. First of all, I love your book. I just need to say that. It's such an amazing read. 
all the rich history, all the storytelling, the details. For me, it was ultimately a celebration of Black motherhood. How would you describe it? So the book is all about honoring their lives as well as honoring Black womanhood, Black motherhood as a whole and celebrating the diverse experiences that we bring to the table, that we're all very different from each other. Part of this kind of reduction and dehumanization of Black women's identity is that so often people try to put us in this one box versus celebrating the rich nuance and diversity that we each bring to the table. And all three of them were very different from each other, although they had some of these similar shared experiences. And so studying them, uh, I was researching them. I was in the middle of my research when I found out I was expecting Michael Malachi. And then when he was already here born and I was kind of editing chapters later after my maternity leave, he was kind of napping on my chest while I was writing and editing these stories about incredible women. So definitely in that day when I went into labor, I was thinking about the three of them as well as so many others and thinking even about the conditions that black women throughout history have given birth in, regardless of their own access to resources and privileges, what was going on around them? What were they fearful of? How did they tap into their strength? And it really just felt so empowering for me. You know, I was part of this long legacy of so many women who have done this countless times and felt really unified with them. Yes, that's so powerful. And to think about what our foremothers have endured can really help add some perspective for sure. I mean, speaking of perspective, one of the things I love in the book is when you talk about why it is so important for Black women to exist positively. It's crucial for us to be seen in our wholeness, that it not necessarily be read as we only present positive facts about what's happening, but that it's complexity. It's not just As Melissa Harris Perry says, we're not just conquered victims as Black women. And there is a strange obsession in the United States with only seeing Black women in our pain, only putting us in the headlines when we've lost a child, when something has gone tragically wrong, um, and this human experience that everybody should feel, you know, very hurt by. But unfortunately, by casting a light only on our pain, it's also numbed people to our pain in a lot of ways. It's confirmed this narrative that Black women are somehow superhuman and can withhold and tolerate more pain than any other human being. And that that's not the reality. That's not true. But when we're presented in our wholeness, in our joys, in the way that we thrive, not only survive and cope with all the attacks against us, but also find life and find joy and find fulfillment while navigating the pain, navigating the challenges that's when we're seen as the human beings who we are. And in my book, I try very hard to reach that balance of acknowledging the difficulties. We can't ignore those either. The Black maternal health crisis is real and people need to know about it. But we also cannot only be seen as constantly grieving, conquered victims who are just waiting on a system to save them. Instead, it's Despite these attacks against us, despite this way in which we've been treated as less than human, despite even by law being the only ones deemed the givers of property, not the givers of life through our children in times of slavery, we have claimed our humanity. We have said we are worth every ounce of dignity and respect. Our children are worth every ounce of dignity and respect. And until the country can say the same, we're going to push it to do that. We have no other choice but to change the systems around us. If we're a conquered victim, 
then we can't have our own agency. And the truth is we do. So even when I had this extreme fear going into labor and delivery and finding out I was pregnant and all the different kind of attacks that were going to be waged against me and my child, I also was aware that I'm a woman of agency and I'm part of a long legacy of change makers who never accepted these burdens as if they were inevitable, but instead said, okay, well then my choice is to do something about this, to use what I can use to make a difference around these narratives, around changing policy, changing minds, so that we are seen in our wholeness, seen in our complexity, because what I'll say finally is when we focus solely on pain, others see it as if it's the only choice for Black women, and it's almost the expected thing that we think is going to happen. Did you know that racism and bias in care has been directly linked to the Black maternal and infant mortality crisis? Black and brown women and birthing people need to birth with Earth. Earth is in the word birth, but we dropped the B for bias, is a new Yelp-like review and rating app for Black and other birthing people of color to leave and find reviews of OBGYNs, birthing hospitals, and pediatricians. Join the movement to use our collective experiences to inform and protect each other and to bring transparency and accountability to the medical system. Reclaim your birthright to birth without bias. Earth is available now in the Google Play and Apple App Stores. Download today. Search reviews for yourself. Leave a review to help others. Visit earthapp.com to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Earth App. There's so much dehumanization and invisibility around Black motherhood. Yeah. With this project, I was really thinking of the many levels of erasure that I could address in one writing, one project. And there were so many different things I thought about. Number one came the civil rights movement and how often we speak about it from this male dominant perspective as if, you know, all of us can name more black leaders than anybody else at the civil rights movement. So I wanted to do something to tackle that in some way. And then I thought about roles in society and like Western communities that are overlooked, underappreciated, unrecognized, not given the credit that they deserve. Um, so motherhood immediately came to mind with that. I was intrigued in your book as well, um, because you are the mother of a young black male. I am the mother of a young black male. Mine just turned 17. And so mothers of black males have a unique experience, um, have a unique fear as I think about my son getting to the age where he may be driving and, and being out there in the world. And you chose mothers of three black males. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about why did you choose the mothers of three black males? And what do you think, if anything, being the mother of a black male is a unique experience? With the mothers of sons, it's not necessarily that they're any more or less a race than the mothers of daughters, because I think there's also a very unique experience there, or the mothers of non-binary children. But then I thought about how there's something wrong with the gender binary where we assume that young men and boys are only influenced by their fathers. So when we think about Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and James Baldwin, if you're a fan of these three men, you probably have heard something about their fathers. It's really normal for scholars to go in to men's stories and say, not only are they the heroes of the story, but their fathers are the ones who inspired them to become the hero of the story. Whether the father is present or not, 
whether the father passed away when the child was young or not, whether the father was abusive or not, um, whether they were a good or bad father, we focus on the father. And this actually also happens a lot in my own partner's story. He's a public figure and people often want to ask him about his father. When in reality, in the three cases of these three men, as well as in my partner's case, it's the women who formed them. And the stories are just being forgotten simply because it doesn't fit a patriarchal society's notion of what influences the son. The patriarchy is a thing. And then, you know, we don't even really question at some point, right? We have to give ourselves some tools and space to really interrogate that and say, wait a minute. I was really obsessed with like breaking that apart and before I even gave birth to a son. So it was very coincidental that through this experience, I became the mother of a son because in Alberta King's case and Louise Little's case and Bertus Baldwin's case, and I show this extensively throughout the book, their passions, their talents, long before they became mothers, are really what translate into what their sons become. Bertus Baldwin was a writer. She helped transform the minds of people around her through her letters. She had a beautiful power over words. And she believed that people needed to kind of push through the darkness to find love and find light and find healing. Her son becomes famous as a writer who calls himself a witness to the power of light fascinating. We then think about Malcolm X, whose mother is this radical pan-Africanist activist, a Marcus Garvey follower. Some report that she was one of Marcus Garvey's closest confidants. She believes in Black independence, anti-white assimilation. Her son is Malcolm X, who becomes known around the world for Black pride, anti-white assimilation. Fascinating. We think about MLK Jr., his mother, was the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She grows up believing that faith cannot be faith without social justice, that you participate in marches, that you think about boycotts as a, as a means to make a change with you know companies or papers that are disparaging your community. You use that as a tool to shift something. She doesn't use the word nonviolence, but this is the same exact thing that she herself knows to be true and is one of the first members of the NAACP, her parents were. So this is his maternal lineage. And she gives birth to Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who makes these tactics famous around the world. So these are the stories that completely complicate the narrative that men, boys, are only influenced by their fathers. It's not true. It's a part of a strategy to put women in our place, to make us feel like we should see ourselves as weaker, as not having power, as not being influential, but that's just not the truth. Mm, It's not true at all. I I love this book for all of those eye-opening moments. And if you are a lover of history, a lover of storytelling, have an interest in sociology or Black motherhood and its history, this is all of it's in this book for you. Um, And it's just really such a rich book that has something for everyone. But I do want to ask you specifically, what do you want Black mothers to learn from the three mothers? Mm. And like you said, I did write it for so many different people. I think, like you said, everyone has something to gain from it. But for Black mothers very specifically, I want us to feel seen. I want us to feel celebrated. I want us to carry this notion that we know our worth, we know our power, we know our strength, no matter how hard others might try to take that away from us. Um, And also that we walk with that knowledge and that we raise our children with that knowledge. It's crucial for them to see us as people who recognize our own humanity. I think a big reason that 
MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin had such a deep understanding of the human experience was largely because of their relationships with their mothers. Their mothers were both incredibly strong, of course, because they had to be. Again, they didn't see much other choice in that. But they also shared their vulnerability with their children. They allowed them to see them in moments where they were sad or when they were worried. And their children didn't see them. I mean, obviously, there is still this kind of strong woman trope that plays out. And children aren't always going to see their parents as the full human beings that we are. We know that. But that there's a certain extent to which we can kind of defeat the narrative that we can hold it all together on our own, that it's supposed to be that way, that it's okay for me to go unthanked and unrecognized. It's okay for me to not receive credit for what I've done in my child's life. We need to change that. It's important that our children see what we've been through, understand what we've done for them, what we've been willing to do for them. It's a testament to our love for them. And I think that they would better understand us and not only appreciate us better, but have a better understanding of how the world works. There's not magical minions called moms who run around and just make things happen and put meals on the table or clean the house or make enough money to support their families on their own. There's effort that goes into that. And a basic recognition of that is really a favor to our children of being aware that this is how the world works. And I have my parents to thank and let me not erase my mom in the process. And I think on the other side of that, for me, one of the greatest lessons I learned, and fortunately I learned it um, while going through a divorce, was one time I was on this interview and I was on a panel with a young brother. And he was talking about how he was raised by this strong single mother. He has so much pride in, in his voice about her. And, you know, he said that his dad left and his mother was fine and she took care of us and she didn't she didn't crack and she didn't cry. And and all of it, although he said it with a lot of pride and joy, it made me sad because I don't think that that's a way for black men to think about their mothers, right? And, and I had to say to him, you know, brother, that may be what you saw, but you don't know what happened behind closed doors. You don't know what happened when she went to sleep at night and she may have been crying. And it made me think and it made me make a conscious decision to make sure that my young black male never thought that a black family is broken or a black man leaves his family and everything is fine right? Um, we are not fine. We, we, we can be fine, but there are certainly going to be repercussions or consequences and that we have to show the nuances of who we are, not just as strong people and get things done people, but that we hurt, that we have pain, that we cry, um, that we struggle, and that all of these things are part of the Black motherhood experience. And so I was clear with my children as I got older that I would let them know in age-appropriate ways that, you know, their their Black mother is strong, but she's also soft, and she also cries, and she also struggles. She has triumphs. She has good days and bad days, like all of the things that we should be allowed to be. And then I always lean in on my girlfriends to say, what is our role in dismantling that trope, right? Sometimes we can carry it around ourselves like a badge of honor and unknowingly pass it to our children. But we need to think about ways that we are deliberate in honoring our nuances, our own softness and our strongness and our interactions with our children, because that's really important. And it's up to us to make it so. 
Anna and Mika, I close every episode asking, what is our birthright? Mika? Our birthright is to be at the center of our care, to be empowered and to be informed. Anna, what is our birthright? Oh, our birthright, and I would say very specifically for Black women, because it's been taken from us and people have tried to take it away from us, I should say more so, this attempted removal of our basic ability to say, I am human, I deserve respect, I deserve dignity, I deserve to be treated with the same protections and the same supports as other human beings around me. That is our birthright, to practice our agency, to bring freedom to ourselves and to allow others to see us in the freedom that we know we have, but also to push systems in our nation to match that view that we have of ourselves. That is a part of our right. Unfortunately, for so long, it's been the case that Black women have had to continue to claim that for ourselves. And I think we're arriving in a moment where hopefully through more attention being paid to Black women's complexities, through more of us speaking about us in our wholeness like we've done today, that can transform from people solely admiring us for our strength and our resilience, and again, only focusing on the grief that we've persisted through, to transforming that into action and saying, let's continue to make this birthright that we should all have available to us a reality to all of us and think very clearly about who that's currently being denied to and participate in this as a nation, as a whole. It shouldn't just fall on the individual to say, I'm claiming this for myself. It's also our nation, our world should have that built in so that these birthrights are respected and granted. Hmm. I think we've done our foremothers proud here. I want to give a special thank you to Anna Malika Tubbs for joining me. Please check out her book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped the Nation, published by Flatiron Books. Please visit AnnaMalikaTubbs.com and follow her on Instagram at T underscore honesty. I also want to give thanks to Mika Cade for joining me on this special extended episode. I'm Kimberly Sales Allers, and thank you for listening to Birthright, a podcast about stories of joy and healing and Black birth. Birthright is hosted by me, Kimberly Seals Allers, and produced by Domino Sound. Our executive producers are Nolika Radway and Kimberly Seals Allers. Randy Chapman produces the show with Nikki Valdez as assistant producer and help from Homero Radway. Sound design and engineering by Sam Baer with original music from Trell Robinson. Birthright is funded by the California Healthcare Foundation. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.